When you enrich the lives of your employees through purpose-powered leadership, they'll grow your business for you. Welcome to the Higher Purpose Podcast, where you'll discover how to champion a culture of courage and love. Stop dealing with symptoms and get to the root of the problems in your business. This is the Higher Purpose Podcast with your host, Kevin Monroe. Welcome to episode 46 of the Higher Purpose Podcast. Hey, we're chugging along here with our initial Profiles of Purpose series, and we're about to draw this initial set of conversations to a close. And boy, it's been a rich group of conversations. If you've missed any of them, I suggest you catch them all, and and we've made it super easy for you to do that. You can go to PurposeProfiles.com. That's a site where we've housed all of these conversations, so you can just get them in one place. Soon, we'll be announcing the first publication of these conversations in a digital print format where you can share them with friends that may not be listening to podcasts yet. Hey, it's a privilege to host this podcast and to host conversations with leaders who are in business on purpose, people who are taking a different approach, a richer, more meaningful approach to business. In many cases, I'm actually privileged to make the first introduction for some of you to these extraordinary people. So if you've not yet met Brandel Randolph and the 1854 Cycling Company, then you're in for a treat. I discovered Brandel through our mutual friend Russ Stoddard. And if you've been listening to the podcast recently, you may have heard that name frequently. I interviewed Russ back in episode 38, and then Russ connected me to Lisa Cooper in episode 44, and then once again, Russ is the conduit through which I met Brandel. Brandel Randolph is the founder and owner of the 1854 Cycling Company. He's also the co-founder and executive director of Project Poverty, a nonprofit organization that aims to design, create, and implement innovative strategies to reduce poverty. He's also an author, a guest lecturer, and even has a TED Talk on his resume. I encourage you to give it a listen. Randall, what an honor to have you join us today. I can't wait to see what unfolds through this conversation. What's something you'd like us to know about you that that might not always make it into a formal introduction? (laughs) Um, I can't make... Eggs pretty well. No, I'm <laughs> <laughs> oh, one of the things that, that that's amazing is that um, I li- would like to be introduced as a poverty alleviation, mm. um, you know, person rather than a guy who owns a bicycle company, because wow. I, I kind of get um, ashamed because my ability as a mechanic is not as well as people think. <laughs> you know, I got guys who are good at it, but I'm not one of them. So. Uh-huh. So I'm sort of a social activist, uh, poverty alleviation person, more than I am a bicycle mechanic or those kinds of things. Okay. Now, Brandell, I just have to say, that's why we're talking. I mean, it was yeah. this whole idea of this poverty alleviation uh, melded into a business and, and all of this together. And we'll get to that in a moment. But but before we do, one of the things that I loved as I was just getting to know you and, and learning about you is it seems that your purpose is multifaceted. Now, yes. I think that's true for most everybody, but most people aren't in touch with it. 
to the degree that you are. So how do you describe your, I mean, you just talked about poverty alleviation. How mm-hmm. else do you describe your purpose at this moment? At this moment, it's to, well, let me go back. Okay. Um, my purpose is based on this theory that poverty is not behavioral, it's more structural. Okay. And the purpose is to change the structure of how poverty works in other people's lives, mm. particularly the children who are caught up in the generational cycles of poverty. What is the basis for, how do you reset that structure mm-hmm. so that the poverty in their lives isn't structured against them? Okay. You know, so it's kind of like um, my purpose would be to create these jobs that kind of reverberate through the households of each and almost every single employee that I have. Okay. So to interrupt the intergenerational cycle of poverty and change it for future generations, right? Yes. Yes. Love it. Uh, So share with us then the journey that that has led (laughs) your path to purpose and how you ended up starting this company known as the 1854 Cycling Company. Well, I think my journey probably started back in LA in 2008. This is when I was a commodity broker, you know, worked at a hedge fund, all these other fun things, but then the financial collapse happened. And when I relocated with my wife to Lubbock, Texas, when she got her doctorate from Texas Tech, I um, started figuring out what I'm going to do in my life. And what I realized is that as a broker, I didn't have much to offer, but neither Lubbock in terms of jobs that I can get. So I started a nonprofit <laughs> and it was to look at poverty and how it shapes the lives of other people based on an incident that happened that I kind of described in my TED talk. And from there, I learned that poverty is not this mythical, theoretical, stereotypical thing. It's actually something that has about 30 different aspects. And you can actually find out why people are poor in what region down to the census track. And this actually gives you a pathway to creating solutions for those people in particular. And that was a lot of nonprofit work I did in Lubbock. And I kind of went from there. But when I got to Massachusetts um, uh, about three years ago, I did not want to do the nonprofit work because there's not a lot of money floating around here. I mean, in theory, there is money for nonprofits who want to do good things, but in actuality, there isn't. They give it all to these major nonprofits who sucks up millions of dollars and they expect them to give you money, but they're not going to give you money to compete with them and take the heads away from them because that's the way they do their whole accountability thing. So I was thinking I'd start a business and employ a few people. However, I stumbled across bikes because I wanted to ride one one day and I didn't see anything I really wanted. So I make, made the bike that I wanted. And while I was in the shop, other people wanted it. <laughs> and so that became a business. But then I started looking at how I could employ people who were poor or struggling in poverty. But then I actually took a step further and I said, who was poor in this town that I lived in? Hmm. And I realized that by doing that research and that background, that a large, I'm sorry, that um, women who are who have criminal background histories who live in households with children younger than 18 who live in this poverty ratio are overrepresented wow. amongst those in poverty okay disproportionate number of women who have kids who have criminal records right this census track or, or this town and those are the women that need help the most okay and, and so you decided you were going to do something to specifically help those women 
right? Yes, because they're the ones who need it the most. Okay. And that's about, that's where the research and stuff comes in because we get to a point where we have a general idea of poverty, but we don't really know what it is and who's affected. And it turns out that it's these women because even though they're working moms, they don't really earn enough to mm-hmm. um, provide food, clothing, and shelter for rare, barely themselves, much less children. So, but a lot of them, because of their nature of their work, don't qualify for the other benefits that are come from government assistance and those things. So they kind of like those people in the middle. Yeah. But, uh, no, they're they're just in this really difficult space and a catch twenty two, mm-hmm. and yeah. unless somebody intervenes, mm-hmm. the cycle is going to perpetuate. Exactly, and it and it becomes these other kids who get out of school and they are not worried about eating from day to day, mm-hmm. but there's always that week or two before the paycheck comes where they may not have anything. And, or it's the, you don't have winter coats in the wintertime, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so when I started looking at jobs for the next century, you know, bicycle mechanics came up. So I was like, oh, right, here's this business I was thinking about. Here's a job where I can pay them 15, 16 bucks an hour. Then I went through that and all these other things. And now what we found was that the market for bicycle mechanics is hard, er, harder in 2018 because a lot of companies have taken their businesses to China hmm. where they can make a regular speed, regular bike for 50 bucks and sell it for 200 and make a profit. I mean, that doesn't create a lot of jobs for anybody. In fact, a lot of these companies are, are, who are based here, these brands that are based here are seriously, are just simply marketing companies for those factories. And so I can't compete with them at that price level. Okay. I, I simply can't. So what we decided was to go full-fledged into e-bikes, electric-assisted, pedal-assist bicycles. And we found that the average mechanic there makes twice, but not only that, but there's a shortage of those certified mechanics to repair electric-assisted bicycles. In the same way, there's sort of the shortage of mechanics to, rep- to repair hybrid cars right now. It's the same way with bicycles. And if you look at the way the demographics going, um, demographics are going, we are probably going to have at least 40% of all bicycles on the road in about 10 years are going to be electric assisted. Wow. And so to get out there now with the higher end brands and the certified workforce in order to create this, we can create a brand that gets into this market. But if all goes well, in about three years, we'll be one of, if not the only wholly built uh, facility wholly built bicycle product in America. And that's where we're trying to go. Um, okay, so Brenda, yeah. This is fascinating. I mean, there, there is, I had no idea there was so much research and, and so many uh, layers and depths of layers to you forming the 1854 cycle company. So what's your favorite way of introducing 1854, because I'm sure there's people that are thinking, okay, why 1854? Uh, well, my favorite way is to, I used to start with the name. Okay. Yeah. Um, the name 1854, because um, beyond me being this social activist person, I'm also kind of a closet history buff. Okay. So when I moved to uh, Framingham, uh, I did a little research on the history of it because I love history. And it turns out in, in on July 4th, 1854, here in Framingham, was the first meeting of the Anti-Slavery Society. Hmm. 
And they met on the 4th to talk about the hypocrisy of celebrating the 4th of July in Boston while simultaneously participating in the Fugitive Slave Act. Mm. That meant that um, freed African-Americans can be brought, can be arrested, brought to trial and accused of um, being escaped slaves, which were now considered criminals under the administration of Franklin Pierce. So what that meant was that um, any African-American could be accused of being an ex-slave. So if you had established a life here, lived free your whole life and everything else, you can be accused of it, stolen in the night and taken back to slavery, and there's nothing anyone could do about it. Wow. And so these um, noted names, such as William Lloyd Garrison, um, Sojourner Truth, um, Henry David Thoreau, uh, Wendell Pierce and a host of other people got together here in Framingham in 1854. And at the, at the end of the slave rally, they burned the U S constitution. Mm. Okay. And this was kind of like Colin Kaepernick kneeling of 18, you know, in 1854, it kind of divided the country and it kickstarted the abolitionist movement. And I kind of liken it to a lot of the things that are happening with women in prison right now, mm. because the recidivism rate amongst women in prison is not as high as men, but the poverty rate is higher. Mm. That means that once women get out of jail, they don't necessarily go back at the same rate that men do. However, Mm. they're more likely to live in poverty post-prison. So are they really free? Wow. You know, and who's going to stand up for these women and the way the abolitionists stood up for the formerly, I mean, and it's all this whole stuff coming out. I mean, it's in fact kind of crazy because I know your pockets can't see this, but our logo is a flame breaking chains. It's kind of, this okay. was on all of our bikes. I got to send you a t-shirt. So, uh, okay. but basically we need more abolitionists yeah. to stand up and talk about the people who want to break these cycles of poverty, <laughs> mass incarceration, and kind of set the mold and, and set these business models of what can work because we live in a society that's quick to recycle products where you recycle aluminum or recycle paper, cardboard, whatever, but we're very, least likely to recycle people. Yeah. Yeah. We, we think that once someone's been incarcerated or has some kind of issue, then mm-hmm. they're immediately disposable. They're no more good. And we could be no more wrong about them. I mean, the workforces that we can, we can create from just the people we've tried to throw away wow. is, is amazing, especially since um, a number of these people are, have been arrested for very, very, very low level nonviolent crimes. I kind of want to set that. Okay. So this is so rich, so deep. And what I said earlier, I mean, there are multiple facets and and layers to this story that I love. And I wonder, just as I was listening to you, it's kind of, there's a play on words here, even, that Mm -hmm. you're using bicycles to break cycles of poverty. (laughs) Love it. In, In the words of Denzel Washington in Training Day. Boom. <laughs> you know, so it's kind of like we have this um, we have this platform and this opportunity to do something special, do something great. But I'm trying to do so many different things with this one thing and it has so many legs and arms. It's kind of like we are yeah. not only bringing women to the um, tech workforce, you know, because this is basically about advanced technology and things like that. Now we've moved over into that sector. Mm. as well with these bicycles, but we're bringing women who were formerly incarcerated, who are le- like, who are very likely to live in poverty presently mm. 
into this workforce. Mm. So it's not a series of bringing a bunch of Harvard grads into it. And it's about women who may otherwise be at our targets or, mm. or big box retailers or, you know, those kind of places, fast food, you know, bringing them into a place because when you look at the data and it says that 80% of these women are mothers mm. and the educational attainment and the occupation of the mother affects the trajectory of the child more than the father or anyone else in their family. You have to consider how resetting that foundation based on her mm. works is the most effective approach. Okay. So th- th- there, what are the <laughs> challenges? I mean, how, Oh, wow. <laughs> has this been more difficult than you ever imagined? Oh, my goodness. It's been difficult on so many different levels. Um, well, let's talk about a couple of those because, I mean, I just love this. It's not just the, you're not in business to make money. You're in business to <laughs> to break cycles, to make significant change, to to do so, to affect so many things at so many layers and levels. And that's just a massive undertaking. So what's what are some of the challenges that, you know, um, just. Been First, difficult. Funding. Funding, okay. Funding. Like um, investors don't like the ties to slavery. A lot of investors don't like the narrow approach of um, of the um, wholesome do-gooder part to it. They're very vulture. <laughs> and they want to see me compete and establish myself in, you know, among people who have you know, a lot of funding and backing, like a lot of my rival companies or competitors are people who started with 10 and 12 million. Yeah. There are people who don't have to work out of a where two warehouses in a garage, you know, they're not people who have to do this. So asking me to compete and then there are people who have showrooms and networks and other things that I'm trying to achieve too. Hmm. And the, um, that's one facet. The, the second facet was the reason why I'm working out of like warehouses and garages and things like that is because I've been, turned away from several facilities over the last year and a half. Because once I, once people find out that I'm going to be hiring formerly incarcerated people, the stigma of, of hiring these people, even if they are women, is still negative. So we get a lot of pushback from hmm. landowners who want my money, but to turn, tone down my business in order to, to accommodate a lot of the other tenants who may be in the building. Because... I mean, the last one wanted me to come in between 6 and 6 a.m., 6 p.m. and 6 a.m. to kind of not be in you know, conjunction because of – then I had another – They wanted me to sign, like, multiple statements that the women will, will always, always be nonviolent offenders and, hmm. you know, all kinds of other stuff and, you know, and have extra security there. And all, I mean, all these – and then take out extra insurance in case, because – Someone was worried that my employees would steal from them or something. It, it was really horrible. Wow. And wow. It's so, and it's all these things that make me kind of like, it's a sad, and it's like me as a business trying to deal with this. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine you as an employee trying to deal with this. Someone looking for formal employment, having to deal with that stigma as well. And, um, and a lot of it's like, we live in this age of Trump where everyone wants everything to not ruffle anyone's feathers. <laughs> and it's kind of like, 
I can't live my life afraid. Yeah. And it's kind of like if we look at the abolitionists at the time, if they were to say we're going to bow down because now we have a new president who wants to bring back the Constitution, therefore he's going to stand up for it and bring back the Fugitive Slave Act, and we're just going to bow down and let this blow over. I don't think any, any I don't think the world will be as it is right now. Mm-hmm. So it's been a lot of challenges, but we, we, we won't quit. Well, no, I don't want you to quit. <laughs> I'm reminded of, of something. There, there's a, a friend of mine. I interviewed her about her new book, Bernadette Jiwa. Uh, her book is the power um, story driven mm-hmm. and you don't compete. You don't have to compete when you know who you are is yes. the subtitle. And, and what I hear is there are these ad- advisors or investors that are wanting you to compete because they're not understanding who you are. They're mm-hmm. seeing you like everyone else that's in the bicycle business. You're seeing you very differently. And Brendel, what I, what I see possible is, you know, the right people, the right partners get what you do. Mm-hmm. And they love what you do and they want to support what you do. So it's, I, I just want to uh, fan that, you knowing who you are and being clear about this and not uh, giving in to them. So we're going to pause for just a moment. Uh, we've got something exciting that we want to tell you about. And then we'll be right back. And I want to hear more about how Brendel's has married social venture and business together. Do you ever think that your work could be a little less ordinary? There's not much in between you and something extraordinary. Just 13 weeks and a bold experiment. Find out more at kevindmonroe.com slash extraordinary to get ready to take your team, your leadership, or your customers to the next level. That's kevindmonroe.com slash extraordinary. Welcome back. We're talking with Brandel Randolph of the 1854 Cycling Company, a cycling company that promotes so much more than transportation. So uh, did you realize how much stigma there was associated with the people you wanted to serve when you started? Or or did you just kind of discover, wow, there's more stigma than I knew? Um. It's a, it's a discovery process. It really is. I kind of tell myself all the time that on this journey, I'm not going to have any expectations. Mm. I'm not going to consider that um, I know everything or that I'm, I'm here to learn, really. And what that does, it keeps me out of the trap of stagnation or, or it helps me to adapt. And so knowing the stigma now, it helps me adapt the business. So now... I can't just have a business attached to someone else's business. I really want to have my own freestanding building. And, but to do that, I got to operate a different way because it's there and it will remain there. Hmm. So uh, all of a sudden I just heard a quote from Shakespeare. Expectation is the uh, mother of all disappointment. Yes. (laughs) You know, if if living free of expectation frees you of some of the disappointment and, and, and that you've heard. Uh, So, who are some of the people that have been most excited about what you're doing and who have you found as partners and champions for the 1854 cycling company? Um, well, first of all, my wife, <laughs> um, yeah, she, she's, she's pretty amazing. And um, she's been sort of my biggest champion, especially in terms of me uh, selling down and being focused on the long-term mission. 
because part of me wants to start out and run away and do all the things and get it done and go out there and compete. And part of it is the sense that I have to do it the right way. Hmm. I don't want to pile on a bunch of excess debt, the wrong people, you know, on the circle, the wrong teams, because those things kind of derail startup companies before they even start. So when the country, by the time most people find out who you are, it's always too late because you've changed who you are to accommodate the uh, investors or the partners or the people who are there. And so far, it's been a lot of friends and family. And the way they do it the most is they buy our products and they post them up on social media. Hmm. Like every time I see someone, uh, an old college classmate or high school classmate or neighbor or friend, every time I see them pop in our little um, e-commerce site and they bought a t-shirt for their kids or, or themselves, it makes me feel great. And then to see some people I didn't see actually make the purchase, to see them wear it on social media is like, wow, yay. I feel like I did something because there's a time in which, you know, we're, we're, we are, um, givers to our community mm-hmm. that kinds of weird detriments. It's kind of like, I want to be a person who inspired hope amongst all my people because absolutely because we um, see a lot of things now that we're getting older that make us really hopeless and gives us full of despair that the world isn't changing and that some of us aren't participating in the good things of the world. And what I like is that people who see our mission to see what we're trying to do, feel like if he succeeds, we succeed and we're part of this. Mm-hmm. And they've been a part of this from day one. When I had like one bike and one t-shirt out, my friends have been out there cheering me on and it's been, it's been amazing. I love it. So going back, we, we were talking earlier. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, before we started broadcasting and I mentioned this in the introduction, you started a nonprofit yes. years back. So what was the journey that the, in the decision-making process that led you from going from leading a nonprofit to forming a for-profit business? What, what were the kind of the... Well, one of the things about the nonprofit business was that the funding was always rough. It was always, I spent more time dealing with uh, grant making and accountability things, making those statements and mm-hmm. all that paperwork you got to do to follow up on the grant every quarter and all those things. And the other problem was that the real work is hardly ever done by the nonprofit. Mm. The real impact is done by the people who hire the person and gives them a good paycheck for a new life. Because as much as we clean the people up or not clean them up, but uh, give them a sense of hope and self-esteem by handing them over to Walmart doesn't really help their lives you know, or these big box retailers that don't pay well or or give them access to benefits or whatever. Now they have a paycheck. Now they have a job, but has that really changed and impacted their lives? And a lot of times it's no, it's kind of like um, we're throwing breakfast sandwiches at the poor, you know, for those that are wondering, and I would encourage you to listen to that. uh... And, and I really want to do something that's very effective. And I think that, creating these jobs that certify women to have um, the ability to repair a high end uh-huh. e-bike and become one of the few people in this country that can actually do this gives them a platform for becoming 
more than this feel good story in their families, you know, like, and I believe that it'll inspire others to do the same, but that sense of pride and self-esteem that comes when this person who I guess a lot of people, even their own families have discounted mm. can see them now making 40 to $50,000 a year, mm. at a job they love making a product that the world is proud of. I think that impact alone, um, is beyond what a nonprofit can do. I just love this because, um, you know, one of the themes that I love is transformation. And what you're talking about, the, 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 and I don't even want to call it an intervention, the opportunity that you're bringing into these families, it has a transformative effect. And as you said earlier, I mean, you're changing future generations, current and future generations. So what does that look like from where you sit and what you see in the lives of the people you serve? Well, if it were um, easier, I'd have a lot more stories, you know, I'd have places to bring them, I'd have all this other stuff, but just, I can tell you right now, it's been, um, it's been great working with a few people and a lot of the feedback I get comes from some of the therapists, Hmm. the transformation, the people who actually touch them on a daily basis or weekly basis even, and see how just the relationship between mother and the child have kind of come together over the course of the fact that now mommy has a job that she can be proud of. So every time I'm on like the TV or whatever and the children, you know, see it or whatever, my mommy works there makes some of the women feel better about what they do. Mm. You know, and it's kind of like, I wish I had a bigger place or some kind of place where they could see them working because it means a lot. I mean, that's inspiring to a lot of people to see the person who they love the most being affected by things like this. Like I want to see you at work and I want to see what you make out there in the world, you know, and it's kind of an amazing thing, but I think the transformation hasn't yet to be seen. It started, but it hasn't yet to be seen. My true measure of success would be how many of these Mm -hmm. children, go to college. That's going to be when I'm like proud, when I'm like getting the college invitation to one of my employees has a child that's going to college and they've either been accepted or they're graduating. That's when I feel good because I think that's the transformational restructuring of the foundation of someone else's life. Because all the feel good stories in the world doesn't compete with now you have an opportunity. So, Brendel, you've talked about this has been challenging. It's difficult. What are some of the things that you've you've mm-hmm. learned or, or you're you're learning to do differently to support and serve oh. these women as employees? And, and what does it take to help them make that transition? Because that's not an easy transition for many of them. Well, one of the things I've learned is um, you have to rely on the expertise of others. You know, um, what is like, uh, I'm not a therapist, won't, won't have any experience at MSW work. I won't be able to do that, but relying on someone that does is key. I'm not a person who is a master bicycle mechanic. Relying on, on people who, ha- who are is a matter of expertise. And I'm not even a person who's a entrepreneurial business mind. <laughs> and so being able to rely on someone who does gives me the ability to be the visionary, the guiding force and all the other things I do more effectively. 
And sometimes there is challenges outside your comfort zone, which breeds success. But sometimes you're being out of your comfort zone means you're not in your position mm-hmm. where you need to be and where you're placed. Um, and I really think that a lot of business and a lot of purpose, purpose-minded people need to refocus on you were planted mm. here for a reason. Just because something's going on over there, don't mean you need to run over there and do that. Um, it's sort of the reminder that we are who we are for a purpose and a reason. And my purpose is probably just to care and to um, make sure it all happens as CEO, but um, it works. What's different about working at 1854 Cycling Company than working at Walmart or somewhere else? Um, we're a lot more flexible. We don't do the 37 hours at a 40 hour a week thing. We don't require anyone mm-hmm. to be here hourly. It's more of a salary, even though we require people to be here, whatever it's the, you need to go pick up your kid. You need to go do dentist. This you need to go interview for this or whatever. See you. <laughs> you know, you need to go talk to this person. You don't have the, uh, ability to be here exactly at nine o'clock. Got it. You know, it's the, we love you as a person who wants to see you grow. There's some things we need to get done, but we understand that you are indeed human, not a cog that we're going to replace. We want to make sure that we're supportive of you mm-hmm. as you are of us. And it's this um, lack of location right now. That's kind of putting a dent in all these things. I mean, if we were to have the big facility, you could see more of the stuff that we would do like um, the group meetings or whatever. I mean, I basically sold my car about two months ago and got a 15 passenger van, you know, so we can uh, do more stuff, um, you know, take more trips and those kind of things, not just go to the certifications, but do other mm-hmm. stuff as a company. It's this idea that I don't want to be the leader of the, of the 1854 company. I am within it as well. I'm among the company. Like um, I want to be the approachable CEO. I don't want to be the guy that's just on TV that we never see here. So that's what I want to ask. What What is different about you as a leader because of your commitment to purpose? You, you started that. I think my definition of leadership. Okay. And what is your definition? I don't think leadership is um, this idea where we, direct people where to go and we do all these other things. I think it even goes beyond showing people, you know, how it is. This whole example of being, you know, this is what I want and all those other things. I think it's more of giving people an opportunity to Mm. do what they do best. And I kind of want to show that you don't have to be in charge or the boss or this and that you can let this person do this this person do this and this person do this. It's kind of the Mm -hmm. servant leader principle kind of thing where you don't necessarily have to go and um, cut up all the vegetables and serve the food and tell the waitress how to put their thing down. It's kind of like ask a waitress, how would you put this down if it were your job and then empower her to do that in that way or him in that way or empower, you know, her in the kitchen as they cook or the chef or whatever. But who are you empowering to do what they do and they know how to do best? Like, for instance, we have uh, bicycle mechanics here who put together a bike in different ways. There's a different process. 
And it's kind of like, what makes your process over this process better is not my concern. My concern is what is the quality right. of the build at the end? So people feel like I'm more on their side than in so opposition. You, you may not know this about me. I've done a lot of work through yeah. the years around servant leadership. Uh, used to run a podcast called the Servant mm-hmm. Leadership Sessions. And well, Howard Bihar, one of my favorite servant leaders was with Starbucks mm-hmm. is where he started in the very early days. But he had this principle, let yes. the person that sweeps the floor choose the broom. Yes. Which is what you were just saying. You know, you don't tell them, hey, here's the outcome. Give freedom of how the mm-hmm. outcome is achieved and, and personal responsibility for how they take ownership of that. Uh, so what what mm-hmm. excites you most right now? What, you know, when, when you look back, let's just look. Uh, when oh. we're talking, we're, it's uh, the end of May. This, this airs early June, but first mm-hmm. five months of the year. What's something you're celebrating, Brendel? For yeah. the first five months of the year? Um, we have the... For the first five months, I mean, looking backwards, what excited me the most is the ability to um, break new audiences. I mean, we've uh, gotten featured on a prominent okay. TV show here in Boston on one of the networks. It's kind of cool. And uh, they did a feature on us like 10 minutes. So we got out in front of millions of people and they're re-airing it again. But um, that excites me most. The next thing that excites yeah. me going forward from here is we were accepted to this thing called the Mass Challenge okay. Business Accelerator. And um, I guess there were 3,000 applications, 1,600 accepted. They whittled it from 1,600 to 300 wow. to 128. And this 128 comes, comes from 16 different states, 11 different countries, and across multiple uh, industries. And we were one of the 128. And that um, startup accelerator gives you access to company partnerships, all kinds of resources. And... At the end, there's this award thing for almost $2 million in equity free cash. So we're very excited about that and the possibility of partnering with some of these major corporations to get a lot of our new bikes done, uh, the new designs and new things. And that, if it's successful, will be the thing that we can take the trade shows, get the purchase orders, and use that to... um, set the foundation for stabilization of mm-hmm. having our own facility because that'll cover the operating costs for us for a couple of years. And we'll make sure to get it done. If we, if we can get all this other stuff done now in terms of design and build. And um, I'm excited about the fact that this idea has gone from hiring five or six people to hiring 20 to now a possibility yeah. of hiring almost a hundred. And that's the scalability that you're really looking for for impact, not just profitability, but for impact yes. in transformation. Yeah. It's, it's the impact. Because if, if you just did the, the raw numbers, if I hire a um, hundred formerly incarcerated people and you consider that 80% of these people have children and the average number of children amongst them is two, <laughs> you're looking at a possible impact of changing the lives of almost 300, I'm sorry, 260 people. That's world changing almost to know that the well, that, lives of 260 people. That's one ripple out, Brandell. That's one ripple out. Yeah, that's one ripple out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not the two and three. Yeah. 
you know, that comes after this is someone's grandma who did this yeah. and she becomes a doctor who does yeah. this, who does this. And it's just now that excites me. I'm, I'm getting uh, serious. It doesn't happen too often on the podcast. I'm getting goosebumps hearing this and just like envisioning that, yeah. that that's, that's the power of purpose at work. And that's what keeps you motivated to do what you do. So I want to ask, mm-hmm. how do you keep mindset? You know, when, when things are difficult and, and you're, you've had a lot of rejection and you get these barriers and, and you're fighting stigma that doesn't make any sense. What is it that keeps Brendel going? My wow. children are watching. And you have how many children? Um, two. Two. I have an 11 year old and a five year old. And what keeps me going is that um, I started something difficult, something with a purpose that may not have a check at the end, but it has a something meaningful. And I don't want to give up because it tells them that doing right for the world can't be done. I don't want, I actually doesn't, but I don't want to send the message that this is a path that they should not try to do good and to show all the difficulties of going up and down, to not have the funding that other people may have or to have the support that other people may have or means that I won't quit, you know, but it's this little small things, these little small victories you get. You know, seeing like one of my sons ride the prototype mountain bike that we have or seeing another one wear the hoodie, love the hoodie, you know, those kind of. But beyond all of that stuff, it's kind of the inspiration I want to give them to continue on because win or lose, you know, failure or success, I want to take it out to the end. And at the end will be when there's literally no more air, when there's no one buying anything from me, when there is no accelerator, when there are no people asking me for podcasts or interviews or these things at the end, when it's been months since someone's bought a bike from me or a hoodie or something like that, or the bank accounts are so bad that I can't, um, you know, put cheese on the Whopper kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I want to sit down and have that talk. You know, that gather my family thing and say, oh, I've gone as far as I can go with it, with all the people that we've had, all this, this, this as far as we can take it. And that's when I sit down and I just admit to myself, this is what I learned. This is what I want you guys to take from. So there is no failure. There's only learning. Yes. And that's kind of where I want to go okay, with it. But that's what keeps that. me motivated. I want to invite you to flip that. Let's look at a different mm-hmm. down the road scenario. And that's that this is flourishing beyond your wildest imaginations. And the cycles are being broken. And you've been attending graduations, college graduations, and send-off parties. What, what's, this, what's that conversation with your kids then? Do you still want it? <laughs> The ownership stake that I'll still have in it or whatever one of these partners leave behind or whatever. Hmm. Do you still want it? Uh, or is it something that just sits in your portfolio or whatever? Or are you just going to go and do summer internships or whatever? But what you do with this from here on is no longer about me. It's about you. How do you want to continue 
this. Do you want to take it and sit in this chair and go to do your engineering and design stuff and your robotic stuff? Or do you want to do your fashion design stuff and this and that? Or do you just want to pass it over mm -hmm. to someone who has an opportunity? Or do you want to detect a nonprofit? Yeah. Or if you want to dissolve it and go buy Ferraris. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's kind of at that point, it's their choice because the company is built for not mm. my first name, but for my last name. You know, and I kind of have to remember that, mm. that mm. it's not mine to give. You know, especially when dealing with vulture capitalists, I have to remember mm. it's not mine to give. So, Brandon, uh, what encouragement would you share with, with someone listening that, wants to blend business with making a difference on an important social issue to them? You have to be really authentic. We live in the age of information. And the problem is that we have a lot of people who want to do social impact missions, the whole buy one, give one, or some kind of other stuff. Let's go give clothes to people in some country. So they'll drive through the poorest neighborhood of town just to get to the airport to go and do this. I mean, and they do it all the time. I mean, and it's like you read their social media and stuff. They really don't have any interest in the people at all. They just kind of do it for, and I believe that in the age of information, you will fail unless you're authentic to your purpose because who you are ultimately will shine through. Because there are, there are people who will um, seek to exploit you and give you things that are not conducive to your spirit in order to mm -hmm. piggyback off right. your good PR. <laughs> and that could ultimately ruin you. But the other thing is that we have to main, you have to maintain that side of it that is a business. And most people don't understand the business part of it. Like even nonprofits are businesses. And a lot of people don't understand that. So they end up failing or begging. That's kind of the option that happens when people don't understand. Um, when people don't understand that businesses are businesses. Yeah, I used to, to do a lot of consulting work with nonprofits. And that was one of the hardest things to help people understand is you're still a business. Uh, it's what you do with the profit at the end of the year that makes you different. But if there is no profit at the end of the year, there is no mission at the end of the year. Exactly. So, Brendel, we're we're exactly. going to wrap this up. Let me ask, is there something you'd like to share or say before we conclude that makes this conversation whole for you? Um, there is a level of faith that has to be put in every single aspect of your business. You are not going to know and there's no, there's no research you can do that's going to tell you how successful you're going to be. <laughs> none. None. There's no magic wand. There's no... Um, market study. There's nothing like going out there and stepping out on faith in order to see if it's going to succeed or fail. But the thing you don't want to do is put too much into your business before knowing what it is that is required of you. And you won't know unless you go out there and do it and ask. But when you're not authentic, you'll never know because you won't ever be honest with the answers that you receive. You have to really be really honest with yourself. And that honesty is the way and the key to success. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. What a, what a great way to wrap this up. Now, before we go, I've just got to give people an opportunity. They're going to be people that want to get connected. They want to learn more. They want to buy a bike. They want to buy clothing. 
Where do they do that? Um, 1854cycling.com. Uh, go to our website where we have um, reduced our prices for the summer. And um, right now we have the um, bicycles with the Copenhagen wheel, which is a product that uh, is out there, you know, based here in Cambridge. Um, not here in Framingham, but near Cambridge. And that's, that's one of the products that turns your bike into a pedal assist. And that's on sale right now. We're way below market on that. We just kind of really want to get our brand out there to as many pieces, people as possible. And um, if anything, if you just want to send us an email, there's a contact us page there on our website to say, hi, we love you. And that stuff keeps us going. Uh, also our Facebook page and our Instagram are a great way to connect with us at any time. Send us a message, send us a hi. Thank you. Like a couple of pictures. All right. And we love there to hear you from have you. It. Thank you, Brandell. This has been exhilarating for me to host this conversation. And I, I trust that it uh, puts winds in, wind in your sails for the, the future you see and the legacy you're helping the people you serve accomplish. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for this conversation as well. It, it really reinvigorates my spirit as I sit here in the garage. <laughs> hey, Brandell, thanks so much for joining us for this episode of the Higher Purpose Podcast. I wonder if this comment from Brandell lodged in your head the way it did mine. You gotta be authentic about purpose because who you are will ultimately shine through. So you can't fake it. Sooner or later, who you are is going to shine through. Another point Prendell made, look at where you are right now. You were planted there for a reason. Figure out what it is and figure out, do the research to find out what's going on around you and how you can make the greatest contribution or difference where you are. And then finally, what Brandell said in closing, it's important to do your research and homework, but you simply can't do enough research to guarantee success. Sooner or later, you've got to have a level of faith to passionately pursue business in life. Hey, until we connect again, I want to encourage you to do what Prandell and I do on a regular basis, navigating north in business, leadership, and life. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Higher Purpose Podcast. Remember, if you ever think that your work could be less ordinary, there's not much between you and something extraordinary. Just 13 weeks and a bold experiment. Find out more at 13weekstoextraordinary.com.